<lacht> oh ja. Sauber. We'll turn this fear into nein. Just, just say ja and don't say nein. This is, this is really good. It's, it's so ridiculous that I'm just like, this is, it's bad, it's good. It's like, it's, a, it's brilliant. It's just ingenious. <lacht> Um, ah, very nice, okay. Turn this fear into a night. Dun, dun. Okay. <laughs> yeah! Nope. It's very loud in my headphones. Yeah? But I can stand it. That is good, yeah. I'm tough like that. Hello and yeah. welcome. Hello. I should put welcome this away. Welcome to Plants now. and the Pets. Quite what are you doing? You're playing with something. I'm trying to pick a lock. Mm. <laughs> I'm not really good at it. Um, Yoram's new career is really opening up for him. <laughs> we can say that in a second. But first, like, welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast. Where we talk about plant molecular biology and things that happen in the world of science. Yeah, my, I am Tegan. And my name is Yoram. Um, Hello, Yoram. Good, good to have you back, listeners. Good to have you back, Tegan. Yes, I am here in London. Yeah, we just before the show, Ting just showed me an amazing musical thing. What is it? <laughs> it's six to musical. So on the weekend, I went to see a musical called Six. It's about the six wives of Henry the Eighth, and it's just very, very silly. So it's um, each of the wives kind of sings pop songs in different styles about their relationship with Henry the Eighth, and the idea of it is that they're all competing. And you have to then like choose at the end which of them had the worst deal by Henry the Eighth. So I mean, obviously, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Like so, there's like he killed two of them, he divorced two of them, and then one of them outlived him. Um, and you have to choose like who got the shittiest deal. Um, and they all sing their little songs. But one of them was Anne of Cleves, who's actually um, Anna of Cleves, maybe from Germany, and she basically according to at least what I know from this musical, but I think it might be actually somehow based in, in historical fact. She was chosen by Henry based on the fact that she looked hot in a portrait. Um, a painter did a really nice nice job on her and then he got her. He basically like mail-ordered her and got this wife. Um, and I think it was probably also a benefit that she was German and therefore Lutheran and not Catholic because he was at that time doing his own Church of England thing. And then he, she arrived and he's like, this is not what I wanted. She's not hot enough. But she got a really good deal about out of it, at least according to the um, the musical and the songs in the musical. So she basically got her own castle and her own money and was just allowed to like be divorced and go and live with quite a lot of power and money and servants and stuff. I think even back in Germany. So mm. she was kind of living the good life. So out of all the wives who were singing, she's kind of like, oh, my life's so hard. I have all this money and I have all these riches and I'm just like my own queen in this castle and it's really 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 hard like yeah and yeah. we just watched this video because um they sing german and they sing very good german no, they, they there's a line that says we'll funny. turn a fear into a no nine <laughs> so a four into a nine by adding makeup to the women which um i i don't know i, I think at the at the musical i was laughing just I was enjoying that way too much and my friend who was with me was a little bit concerned for my sanity because <laughs> it was very very silly but it was a really it was a really fun musical it, it was, was like it really was fun um yeah I I didn't go to a musical um surprise surprise my my big highlight was that <laughs> yesterday like I had an overly complicated um eBay Kleinanzeigen thing which is pretty much just uh, i think craigslist is the same in the u.s and yeah gumtree we have in australia and then the uk 
Yeah, it's so yeah, like eBay but without uh, bidding. And um, so I yeah, I wanted to have a lock so I could pick that lock because I did a lock picking <laughs> class be- between uh, Christmas and New Year. And oh, so dear. I found like somebody like buying new locks is quite expensive. And so I wanted to buy a used lock. And then like the guy didn't want to send it to me because he he said it was too much trouble. So I had to go to like Potsdamer Platz in Berlin and just to like pick up an eight euro lock there. Um, mm. So I cannot even use it as a lock, but pick it. And um, yeah, that was my highlight of the week. But now like, I when- haven't managed to pick it yet. So I have like a, a set of tools, like the cheapest tools on eBay. Um, and yeah, I'm still struggling. I'm getting like four out of six pins. I can I can make work. I can't get the last two to work, so it op- doesn't open yet. Um, when you pick it, are you damaging it, or are yeah, you? Yeah, over time. So not- okay, but if you go- if you were good at picking it, theoretically, you could push all the pins down without actually completely rooting them, right? Um, yeah. So the the longer you pick a lock, the more you damage it, and so eventually you can even pick it to the point that even the key can't open it anymore. Um, but that's that takes a lot of time. But it's still even if you are a very good lock pick, every time you pick it, you damage it a little bit. And so the mm-hmm. safest way is always to use the key. So even if you're a great lock pick, you will still use your key for your front door because if you would pick it every day just to show off, you would eventually break the lock and would have to replace it. And also, you would have no friends, guys. Just really no friends. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, it's we, a fun exercise. We all exercise. know that person, right? <laughs> it's a fun exercise, but um, it's harder than I thought it would be. So, yeah. my. I, I mean, that, that's a good thing, right? That's kind of what you want with a lock. Yeah. Yeah. My screen, my big external screen, is making all kinds of weird, like, defects. So, I hope that it will survive the recording um, just as a heads up. <laughs> but if there is a sudden okay. break... Um, although if if just the screen fails um, and not my computer then it should be fine anyway um, so yeah that that, that was that Um, shall we start with the paper let's go to the paper it's the paper of the week and this week let me just press this button here as well Um, this week um, the paper that we chose that you chose actually right Mm-hmm. is a super repellency of underwater hierarchical structures on salvinia leaf by Yao Lai-Xiang uh, from the group of Huling Duan. I hope I did the names justice. Um, they are from Beijing, um, from the Center for Engineering Science and Advanced Technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a clue to the theme of the paper, the fact yeah. that they're not coming from a biological lab, they're coming from this yeah, Department of Mechanics and Engineering Science. Um, in the Beijing. Yeah, so why why did you choose the paper? I chose the paper because I chose the paper because it was the front cover of PNAS um, this week and it looked really cool. It reminded me of the water lettuce that we've talked about a little bit before. So one of these aquatic floating plant um, weeds, which has these kind of shiny leaves, which when you drop water droplets on them, they just immediately roll off, which is actually one mm-hmm. of the the features of this plant as well. And also I had a little a look at the abstract and I read that they were doing some um, 3D printing. So I thought this might be a bit more up your alley, this idea of taking ideas from nature and then yeah. kind of hacking them and learning and yeah, yeah, making cool stuff out of it. So Yeah, the um, 
yeah, the species that are working with Salvinia molesta um, is similar to to lotus leaves, but they actually compare it to lotus in the paper, and there are mm -hmm. some like significant different differences that we'll get to. Um, but yeah, so the cool thing, um, as you said, is this like hyper um, repellency of water, and this is all down to a, a very thin layer of air between the leaf and the um, uh, the, the actual water around it. Mm -hmm. and can i talk briefly about the genus first yeah, or kind of like please. this species itself so i mean yeah they are these floating ferns they're called um or water moss which is one of the other common names for the the kind of salvinia genus as a whole um and one of the species is actually one of just two fern species which has ever been um had its genome published according to wikipedia i'm not sure if that's true anymore because we have so many plant genomes but in any case an early um published genomes genome and it's also one of these invasive weeds. So again, what we talked about with water lettuce a couple of months back on the podcast, it's something that grows really rapidly. And because it has this feature where it floats on top of the water, it can make these huge um, mats across the water and basically then suffocate all the life forms underneath it. So block out the light, but also use up all the oxygen, prevent anything from really growing properly. So it's, it's a huge pest um, which gets around in um, warm climates. And that's Salvinia molesta, um, which is the, the giant Salvinia, which I think is actually the species which the author studied here, mm -hmm. if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. It's the, it's the one from the paper. Yeah. So it's, um, it's native to Brazil and it's now infested huge parts of like big lakes in um, Zimbabwe and Zambia and across the world, basically. And it's, it's a pain in the butt, but it also has some really cool features, um, which one of them is what Yoram just mentioned, this kind of special effect mm -hmm. um it's called the salvica effect right and salvinia effect okay that, after the plant then <laughs> <laughs> maybe i put a typo did i put a typo yes. on the page where i'm like oh yeah well done tegan <laughs> sorry guys salvinia effect <laughs> after the plant like, <laughs> i hope you researched the salvica effect because i have no idea what it is but if it's the salvinia effect then i can tell you that um the super repellency here is uh, down to a very thin air mattress and that's actually the term that they use here um that they have a super thin air mattress in between the leaf surface and and the outside and the water uh, and this is hyper slippery and um, makes the droplets essentially run off uh, without actually touching the leaf um and this is in contrast to the lotus effect right well, it's kind of like almost overlapping. So actually the two phenomenons, the Salvinia effect and the Lotus effect, were both, I think, described by the same German scientist, Wilhelm Barthlot. Barth Barth I want to say Barthlot. I did that badly. Um, so he was a biologist and a botanist, and he actually, he and his colleagues um, were looking at this Lotus effect um, and the, the Salvinia effect. And the Lotus effect is this um, extreme hydrophobicity which lets things um, kind of move off. So it's kind of a Teflon-y effect, right? It makes um, things not stick to it. And the Salvinia effect is what Yoram just explained, that you have this um, water mattress, which kind of, again, it also is super hydrophobic, so it, it prevents water from coming in, but it has some properties which are slightly different from the Lotus effect. So Lotus effect is mostly just slippery, but it doesn't have this kind of air cushion that Yoram just described. Yeah. And um, the the use of this this air mattress is that not only water but also other things sort of uh, are repelled. This very mm -hmm. hydrophobic surface also makes uh, makes it hard for bacteria or fungi or dirt in general to stay long term on the leaf. They just uh, slide off 
um, and yeah, can't can't find a hold there. And this helps the, the the plant to survive in different water conditions, right? Like if they are in very dirty water and they're floating on top there, it would be a disadvantage if mud and other things would accumulate over time on the leaves and reducing the photosynthetic capacity. And that's why this air mattress helps them to keep the leaves clean and do photosynthesis efficiently. Yeah, so that's great for the plant, but you can use this type super hydrophobic surfaces also for non-planty kind of human uses. So if you think of something which doesn't have water kind of going against it, it has this kind of bubble of air around it, it's really good for drag reduction so that basically you don't have any um, uh, friction as you kind of move or like... Um, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, drag reduction is the correct word. As you go through the water for a boat, for example. Um, also, this not having bacteria sticking for it from the point of view of a leaf, you're not getting infected. But if you've got a ship hull, it means that, again, you're not having like organisms cling into the, the metal or any of the structures of the ship. So, again, you're not getting biofouling, so things growing and, and damaging. And also, if you have a layer of air and you don't have water, Suddenly, you're limiting how much corrosion you get, which is really important for, again, metal substances. So there's some pretty important uses for this slippery air mattress effect um, in the kind of human world of technology, right? Yeah. So it would be really cool if we could mimic that. And I think this is the main motivation behind this paper is understanding the process and then finding a way to mimic this surface uh, property so we can use it in all kinds of different technical uh, applications. Um, and so for the first thing, like actually the first figure in the paper um, is, is having a closer look at the structure of these leaves. And what I found mm -hmm. very interesting here is the, um, the terminology that they use and the, how it is reflected actually in the structure. So what they're describing here are these egg beater-like structures on top of the mm -hmm. leaves or actually parts of the leaves. I think they call them leaves themselves, right? Like um, morphologically, the tiny structures are leaves. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, Maybe I misunderstood no, it. The no, the, the leaf surface has these kind of heads. So the... So the reason that the air can get um, stuck is basically there's a whole lot of hairs. So it's kind of the same reason that any um, mammal has hair, that the hairs of the mammal kind of traps air in it and that air layer can stay warm. And that's one of the ways we can we can keep ourselves warm. The, the hair itself is not really insulating physically. It's trapping air particles that then prevent the loss of heat um, directly. So these uh, salvinia leaf surfaces also have kind of a dense hairy forest. That's how they describe it in the paper. Mm -hmm. And um, those hairs have kind of important structures. So they have this long hair stem. And then yes, they have this egg beater shaped head on top of the stem. So this was kind of one of the two out of the three structural features which define the hairs on this leaf surface. Yeah, um, the other structural feature are these like tiny grooves um, on, the, on the surface. So the leaf surface itself, it's not completely smooth, but it has like very thin uh, grooves that are just a couple of, I think, a couple of um, micrometers wide mm -hmm. um, or even smaller. Uh, and that's important because one of the things is you can prevent the... The water from getting onto the surface but at some point if there's enough pressure or if there's enough movement the water that is trapped uh, the, sorry the air that is trapped within those kind of egg beatery hair structures will eventually get out so i think in the um in the paper they showed that they could co compress or collapse this this slippery air mattress by adding something like six atmospheres no almost seven atmospheres of pressure 
which I think is the equivalent to being 70 meters underwater or maybe 60 meters underwater. I think you're already 10 atmosphere or is that one atmosphere? I don't know. Call in, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to Google it. I'm going to Google it. They put a lot of pressure on these poor little plants um, to force the air out because they wanted to see like, yeah, okay, is it possible that eventually the air mattress will collapse? Um, and then what happens once it once it collapses? Yeah. Um, when Once it collapses, the interesting thing about it is that it can very quickly reestablish that air mattress. Um, other plants with similar structures, um, they they have to completely dry to recreate this air mattress and the thing about this plant is that just like uh, if just an, uh, a bit of the leaf is outside and uh, traps some air underneath uh, these egg beaters immediately it re-establishes the air mattress uh, and uh, the effect of the um, water repellency uh, so that's a very interesting um, feature because this regenerative effect of the air mattress makes it a very robust system. And they also did some some tests where they had uh, currents um, streaming across the leaves and this air mattress was very stable even under adverse conditions. Um, mm -hmm. So together with this regeneration of the air mattress, this seemed like a very interesting feature. So you've got a stable air mattress and then you've got one that even if it does get broken under quite extreme conditions, it's not permanently broken. So you can reestablish it and you can reestablish it quite easily by basically just pumping a little bit of air next to it. And this is where those grooves that Yara mentioned really come into handy because the, the air kind of fills through the groove system, gets trapped underneath by those egg beater shaped heads. So that's kind of helping to keep things like keep the air from going out. And they, this is where they compared to the lotus. So they showed um, pumping of the air onto these two different leaves. And with the salvinia, you put a little bit of air, like a little air stream on the edge of the leaf, and it immediately reestablishes this air mattress. But with the lotus, that air just forms bubbles and kind of blops, blops, blops away from the leaf. So it doesn't have any of this, this air mattress effect. It has the super hydrophobicity, but it doesn't have the air mattress effect that you see in the salvinia. And there's actually a video in the supplemental figures of um, of the paper where you can very nicely see they have this needle and they are underwater and they stream air in it. Um, and on the lotus, it just bubbles away. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Um, I actually, I just looked it up now for the atmospheric pressure and it's every 10 meters, you add one atmospheric pressure when you dive. So um, this corresponds to 60 meters underwater, um, as you mm -hmm. said. So really... As a condition that the plant probably will never be in, um, but of course with not great for humans either, I guess. Yeah, but with waves and and these things, you uh, can reach like local pressure maximum um, without being mm. that deep. But still, I guess. Like, well, I guess if you're a boat going through the water quite quickly, so imagine yeah. if it's on the the hull is the front of a boat, maybe then you do want it to be able to withstand quite a lot of pressure because you have like a fine point of the boat, and then you'll be like propelling through water so you probably would get something similar yeah i guess it's not insanely high yeah um anyway the next part of the paper was a lot of calculations where yeah. they basically tried to figure out um the properties of the um these hairs and everything which basically gave it these magical abilities the yeah and mattress abilities. And we're going to skip over that because we are not equation people. Yeah. Just one thing I want to mention from the like the analysis that they did on on the water behavior is that they looked at how the the water and air behave when you slowly uh, put air back under this this layer. Um, 
what what because what they could observe and what they modeled their thing on um, was that you uh, you have these uh, tiny grooves on the leaf surface that first um, fill with air and sort of conduct the air across the entire leaf surface. And then very slowly, you have like an inflation of a mattress. It goes up the stems of these egg beaters um, and uh, stops right underneath the head of these egg beaters until mm -hmm. all of the uh, egg beaters that might be at different sizes, until all of them um, have or like as until the air reaches all of the heads of the egg beaters that are at different heights. And only then it increases above these egg beater heads and then becomes this stable air mattress layer. Um, and this behavior is quite interesting and special for this type of structure. And that's why they did so much complicated modeling and, yeah, an entire figure that I can't fully understand <laughs> um, because this is way more like uh, fluid physics than um, biology. So my, like, thought was, like, this having the egg beater is preventing that it's easy to go out the top and then it, it's easier for the air to spread sideways and to spread upwards when mm -hmm. it reaches the egg beaters and that's what gives it kind of this evening out effect but yeah yeah there's sort of the, a pressure the modeling behind that we do not know there's sort of a pressure that you have like you have to imagine uh, f uh, that you inflate it and at first um, you you don't have to breathe very hard when it just goes along the grooves and then when it uh, starts to go up the, the stems you have to inflate a little bit harder um, and then you have sort of a stopping point underneath the, the, all the heads of the egg beaters and then you have to do, uh, push a little bit harder still to then go over um, the the egg beater heads um and i think this is they, mm. they call like the maximum pinning force that has to be met by the uh, the inflowing air um so yeah but this brings us now that they understood the um system uh now they can work on mimicking it mm -hmm. and for that they used a 3d printer and they created this nanostructure um that's uh, below, like they they have a scale bar here of, ah oh yeah, it's a, around fifty micrometers distance between like these tiny little ha uh, hairs, and they're also like mm -hmm. about fifty micrometers tall. I think they gave the exact measurements in the paper, but just going from from the picture here, and then they created this like very regular array um, of these pinheads, and they made it with with the grooves that mimic the leaf surface, and they did it also without these grooves. Yeah, and then, of course, they did all of the testing and they could basically show that what they had made with the 3D printer was pretty much imitating what they saw in nature. So they were able to get this air mattress and they were able to get not just the air mattress, but the air mattress that could be reinflated quite easily um, if they were putting the air back in. So it was a resounding success. And the grooves were crucial for that. Um, so the smooth mm -hmm. surfaces, they, when they tried to inflate that, those, they just got a localized air bubble. Um, but if they would push more air into it, it would just then break the surface and go away again. While um, for the one, for the structure with the grooves, it would very evenly inflate. They, they show this picture where um, you have like black is air and blue is water. And then within five seconds, the whole picture is just black because everything is covered in air uh, very mm. evenly. Um, and which is like, they have that also as a video that is a little bit more impressive in the image. It's just like, you see something and then you see nothing and nothing means it's <laughs> One good. One second, nothing. <laughs> Five seconds, black. <laughs> good. Yeah. Well done. Um, yeah. And that's the end so of the this is, 
Yeah, this is kind of nice um, because you've got then the two sides. So you've got kind of the the pure research where you understand more how these amazing salvinia leaves do what they do. But then also we have the very obvious applications where we have this water repellent material, which has a whole lot of underwater applications, which can hopefully be used in the future. So quite an interesting story. Nice success one there. Yeah. And obviously this is basic research, but um, it looks like this could have a lot of applications. So maybe we'll see in a couple of years some new surfaces and some technical applications that have these plant-derived microstructures, um, which yeah. would be really cool. So that was Super Repellency of Underwater Hierarchical Structures on Salvinia Leaf. It's by Yao Li Zhang and colleagues, and it came out in December 2019 in PNAS. favorite plant i hope it's your turn is it your it turn it is my turn um <laughs> my favorite plant uh this week um is the schneeglöckchen which is a beautiful german the schneeglöckchen. beautiful german um german name in english is snowdrops mm. um it's of the genus of Galantus, and there's a lot of different uh, smaller species there. And I picked it for very obvious reasons because now begins the season of seeing snowdrops, at least here in Berlin. Um, I think I saw some already in a park, um, at, not mm -hmm. fully flowering, but at least poking their stems out. Um, we don't really have snow here this year, uh, which I'm quite. It's a bit sad, isn't it? I'm, I'm happy about it, but usually the the nice thing in early spring is how they break through the snow, and then you see the mm. first flowers of the year are the snowdrops and um that alone is already for me reason enough to have those as a favorite plant um, i still looked up some some facts about it um and i found a surprise there so the basic stuff is that they grow from bulbs they can do um mm -hmm. they can make seeds and so on through the flowers but the main propagation is from bulbs and they have like these bulb offsets that then grow into new plants every year and so they can very quickly spread once they're established somewhere. Um, like always, um, some of the species are threatened because we as a species are terrible to all other species and we're also threatening their habitats and there's also a trade for the bulbs um, because some of the more uh, rare species of those are very sought after because they're very mm -hmm. pretty. Um, and there's also regular farming going on and so the, uh, the main sources also for the plants that we often buy then in Europe for, for the bulbs, um, they come from Georgia and Turkey that each that, that export in, in the Wikipedia it said millions of bulbs. So I don't know if it's two millions or hundred millions of bulbs every year, but it's a large number of bulbs that both of them export every year. Um, mm -hmm. And now the little tangent slash surprise that I found is um, the Pushtai affair. Have you heard of that? No. The Pushtai affair, affair is um, an affair that is very closely related to the, the snowdrops um, because Arpad Pushtai, a researcher, I think originally from Hungary, but working in Scotland, put um, a toxic protein, a lectin, um, that's called GNA from snowdrops into potato. Um, this was in the, in the 90s, in the late 90s, um, during sort of the, the first wave of genetically modified organisms uh, coming up. And one of the experiments that they did was they fed these um, potato, uh, these uh, genetically modified potatoes raw and cooked to rats. 
um, and then looked mm-hmm. at the gut lining and the immune system. Sorry, how, how were they genetically modified? They had this like snowdrop lactin GNA expressed in the potato tubers. So mm-hmm. um, the lectin has some properties that are killing insects. So, But GNA is, is the name of the gene. Yeah. It's not like DNA, but G. It's, no, no, it's, it's the it's, name it's, of it. Um, okay. I could look up what it means, but uh, GNA... Um, Okay, it's just it's a protein it's, in the it's end, a protein, or it's a gene that then makes a protein. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a sense for galantos nevalis agglutinin. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a... If maybe they tried to do like a pest control or something, but anyway, they put it in the potato fed it to rats. And then Pushtai um, did an interview before they published their research results uh, where he gave away some of the preliminary results and voiced his concerns about GM foods publicly. And he, according to his own statements, didn't think that it would like that the interviewer would have negative. Um, ideas about GMO, um, but it was immediately framed as finally there's the proof uh, GMO are terrible because these rats, they had some changes in their gut lining and so on. Um, mm. And this then triggered a lot of like snowball effects. There were some like um, um, pro- uh, mistakes that the press department did where they also like they mixed up some of the experiments that he did because they immediately put him out of the loop so he couldn't say anything. But then the press department did mistakes themselves in what they communicated, um, creating even more confusion, uh, more anger, and much harder stances on both sides. Um, in the end, um, Pushtai lost uh, all of his position and standing at the university um, okay. because of the controversy. Because they said he must, uh, he shouldn't have published or uh, publicized details of an unpublished story. Story that is um, like unprofessional behavior and so on. And I guess they also wanted to do damage control because in the public eye, um, there was a lot of like anger. Um, but eventually they studied um, the the story in The Lancet, which is a very famous medical journal. Um, and instead of having two peer reviewers, they had six peer reviewers. Um, four of them agreed to publish the story. One had concerns, but also agreed because he said they must not hide the data. They should put it in public so it can be discussed. And the sixth one said it must not be published and then later went public with his statement as well, which created even more <laughs> trouble. So the entire thing... Um, is like a big clusterfuck, um, which leads to like having some some material that anti-GMO activists use to claim that GMO are dangerous. Um, there's still uh, dis- discussions or dispute in the scientific community about the role of Pushtai and his work and his stance on GMO. Was he right? Was he wrong? It's apparently a very complicated topic, and I guess many people have many different opinions. And all of that <laughs> I discovered by accident <laughs> by looking at snowdrops on Wikipedia. It's like one of the early, very um, big GMO really, affairs. Yeah, like really it happened in to... 98, 99, so a little bit before wow. we got invested in this topic. I really want to hear more about this now. I have to find like a good podcast about this because yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. Um, or I could read, but you know, I'm too lazy to read, obviously. Um, yeah, like The Lancet is is one of the, the top medical journals. The problem is we're not medical people. So whenever I think of The Lancet, I think of Andrew Wakefield and the anti-vaxxing movement because that was also one of their yeah. high-profile retracted papers, yeah. which is very unfair because, I mean, all of the high-paper journals have, I mean, nature has something about um, uh, homeopathy, working um there's a there's there's bullshit in every single one of the major journals but yeah yeah, this is not really helping with my opinion (laughs) um 
Yeah. I mean, they published it. And apparently, the study itself um, also didn't find like the the claims that he did in the interview were not then in the final study. Um, they didn't. But they published it, even though the reviewers, the reviewers said that it was crap. One basically. out of six said it's crap. One uh, uh, another one said one out of six. One out of six. Another one said. Um, he has some concerns about the, the integrity of the or the like the the pro, uh, experiment design and so on. But for the sake of discussing this publicly, he wanted it published. And four reviewers out of six said this study is fine to publish. Um, hmm. So well, okay. the majority of reviewers were okay with were it. Okay. And that's a big amount of reviewers, like six reviewers. Yeah. I mean, usually we think three, right? Yeah, usually two, so and then the pretty... third one if there's dispute, right? So it's always three. Okay. It's not always three. It depends on the paper, but I think three, three is a nice number because you've got then balance, right? Like, I mean, if you have one who says yes and one who says no, it's yeah. it's harder to to make a call. I think is kind of the idea. But different papers do different things. Yeah, uh, here on, on Wikipedia it says that it was three times the usual number. So usually, apparently, at the time, <laughs> Lancet did two. Um, okay. About <laughs> or two times the usual number, depending on how you do your math. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, cool. so. I'm just looking at this agglutinin. So the the substance that the gene that they were expressing or the protein they were ultimately yep. expressing was um, agglutinin, agglutinin, which is causes coagulation in the blood. So maybe it's something which could actually have effect yeah. um, outside of plants. Maybe it's, I mean, yeah. So if you do genetically modify an organism to give it something that is toxic, yes, yeah. <laughs> that can be toxic. <laughs> Like, well done, no shit. You've now made something toxic, but the the act of genetic modification in itself is not making toxicity. It's because you've chosen to put something yeah. bad inside. And I don't know with this agglutin, and I don't know enough about um, yeah, medicine at all or human yeah. bodies. It says here that it can be um, damaging to insects. I don't know how it can have an effect on humans or, in this case, in mice. Um, but yeah, guys, <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's, if anybody claims to you that GMO can never be bad, they're stupid. Uh, it's like taking like maybe not it's maybe it's not their fault, but it's, they're stupid. It's like taking a spoon and putting arsenic in your food, and then saying like, "Oh, all spoons are terrible because your arsenic yeah, food is now poisoning it. you." The, the spoon is the problem, and don't blame the spoon, Yoram. Yeah, there is no spoon. Uh, <laughs> so so much oh for snowdrops. Now I'm angry. <laughs> Today, I am talking about Ines, um, Ines Mexia, also known as Ines Enriqueta, which is Henrietta, I guess, Enriqueta, mm -hmm. uh, Julieta Mexia. And she's a Mexican-American botanist, and she's basically famous for collecting a huge amount of um, plant species especially ones in South America um, and also North and Central America, so Mexico as well. But also she went all the way down to uh, Tierra del Fuego, is it called? The very um, bottom of the continent. And she is basically a badass woman who went exploring and collected plants um, samples. So I think she's particularly cool. Maybe some of you have already heard of Inez because she appeared actually in one of the Google Doodles a while back so in september in 2019 she popped up um for her work so 
yeah, just to give a quick background of her story, she was actually born in the U.S. in Washington, D.C., but she had um, Mexican parents, so she was Mexican um, U.S., and she moved around a lot when she was a child, and she basically, people say because she moved around, she was very isolated and loneliness, and that actually kind of developed her um, love of nature because she would go for long walks by herself in the countryside and kind of spot birds and look at um, the plants around her. I think one of the things that's quite cool about her is that, I mean, not not cool about her, but that she started her career quite late in life. So I think she started only in her early 50s. In her late 30s, she actually had a mental and a physical breakdown, which made her basically move across the country, get medical care. Um, she Her marriage broke down. I think she was married a couple of times and the marriages broke down and then like you know, after this kind of full life and like a lot of ups and downs, she kind of decided to take up this originally a hobby of becoming a um, collector. And she just started doing these botanical explorations to Mexico and then um, further south later on and just basically moving around um, the continent, the entire continent. She spent 13 years or so traveling from Alaska all the way down to yeah Tierra, Tierra del Fuego, so the very... Um, okay bottom of the the continent and i like that um at one point somebody basically said that it is impossible for a woman to travel alone in latin america and she was like okay <laughs> but <laughs> but look <laughs> like here here i do it and of course she was like riding horses wearing like you know bloomers not wearing a skirt i should just mention that this is like she was born in the 1870s so this is like mm-hmm. early 20th i mean yeah 1920s around there that she's kind of gallivanting around and she's wearing like you know pants kind of like cropped cropped pants very fashionable um looking completely badass and and you know riding in a non-side side away and camping outside and you know climbing things and getting dirty and not washing her hair for weeks and and doing all these things where people were like this is just not what a woman does like this is not how it should be and and she did it um and i think as I said, one of the really amazing thing about her is that she just collected a huge number of specimens. So she was only active for about 13 years because she started so very late in her life. I mean, not very late, but in her 50s. Yeah. Um, but according to the British Natural History Museum, she collected nearly 150,000 plant specimens, 500 of which which at least are new species. Um, and they're still people are still cataloging all of what she's found. Okay. But... Um, Apparently, 50 new species have been named after her. Um, And even with her very first expedition that she went on, she collected 500 specimens, which is the same that Darwin's um, Voyage on the Beagle, this quite famous expedition, collected themselves. So, like, if you imagine the resources that they had and the resources that she had as, like, kind of a single woman gallivanting across the world. Yeah. Sometimes by herself. So, sometimes she would go in groups. And in one case, she, like, went in a group and then kind of got annoyed by them and just, like, was like I'm done and went off by herself. Um, yeah, so she did this this huge amount of <laughs> this huge amount of work, and there's now a genre that's named after her. It's um, Mexia, so she's Eva's Mexia. So um, Mexia is the plant, and I think uh, no, Mex sorry, Mexianthus is the genus, and there's Mexianthus mexicanus which is a genus of Asteraceae and Asteraceae are these composite flowering plants. So daisies and sunflowers, Mm -hmm. this quite large um, family. So 
yeah, she's super cool. Um, again, her name is Inez Mexia, um, and she's an Mexican-American botanist who was born in the 1870s, started science really quite later in her life, at, in her 50s, and then braved the explorative world to find a whole amount of really cool plants. So oh. thanks, Inez. Cool. That's, that's, that's um, a biopic that I would like to see. Like, yeah. I don't want to see like a guy who goes across the lands being mauled by a bear or a guy delivering a note across the front lines in the First World War. <laughs> I don't care about this stuff. I want to see like a badness Speaking explorer which, going from Alaska have, to have, South have America. Told you about, <laughs> yes, you did. Have I told you about this, this date I went over and saw this film? <laughs> Uh, the film is fine. It's very cinematographically beautiful. Um, <laughs> I have no soul. I was not emotionally... It's 1917, guys. It's probably going to win all the Oscars because it's about white men. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well done, it. <laughs> and it's, like, super heartbreaking because, as it turns out, in the war, some of those white men died. So. Yeah. Terrible. And there's a really Terrible. mean German in it as well. <laughs> there's a super mean German. Spoiler alert. <sighs> a plane crashes. They It catches on fire they help the two British boys help the German out of the plane that's on fire. And then he stabs and kills one of the British boys. Yeah, because that's how we Germans roll. We're just always mean. Why so mean, Joram? Yeah, I don't know. It must have been... It's, it's snowdrop poison in the potatoes that we eat. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have, uh, I have very good news. Let's talk, talk, mm. talk about bias. 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 This sounds like Pongo. Do you know Pongo? I think it's Pongo. I don't know Pongo. Is ah, that an see. artist? Is that a song? Um, I think... Oh, maybe it's Pogo. Damn it. There's a guy who remixes like Alice in Wonderland soundtracks and um, and it's, it's a really similar... Anyway, I'll find <laughs> out. I'll link it. It's amazing. It's really, really amazing. Yeah, so we finally have a jingle for our bi bias segment. Um, it took me long enough and I, I had a, a much worse version before um, that I showed Tegan and she didn't like it and she was right um, and then I did another one that was much better uh, I find. see I'm quality control <laughs> yeah, very, I'm very uh, thankful for that um, so ah, sorry <laughs> wait what? okay sorry I broke something okay, okay carry on uh, so the Go. bias I want to present today is a very short one um, it's called the law of the instrument um, you've probably heard of the the idea that all you have is a hammer um, is that all, <laughs> every problem you look at uh, represents itself as a nail to you um, mm -hmm. and this is a bias the like the more formal way is the over familiar over familiarity of a tool leads to the overuse of that tool while disregarding alternative approaches so not mm -hmm. only that you're hammering things that you shouldn't be hammering you're also ignoring the proper tools that are also existing because you like your hammer so much and mm. I think this is something that we're quite familiar with in research. Like there are, so familiar. There are um, individuals or sometimes even groups that are very good at using a machine. And so they throw that machine at every problem that they encounter. And while they can learn stuff using that machine, um, it's often not the most ideal way. And then you read some papers that do this, look at the same problem but they use a diversity of methods or just a different method because maybe mm -hmm. their machine is a different thing that they like to use but it's just a better tool for the job um, they get the more exciting results so i think what we can learn from this is even if you are very good at something and you would like to see that applied everywhere think about whether or not this is the best 
tool to use. And I think even myself, I I'm very um, like affected by this because I really like podcasting and in science communication, I very often think <laughs> first of doing a podcast about a topic, and I have to actively remind myself that the podcast while I like it and it's great. It's not always the best tool that you can use, um, depending mm -hmm. on who, who you want to reach, what you want to talk about, what you want to express. Um, some things are just better expressed in different formats. Um, and so I, I have my, to remind myself very often that the Hammer podcast is not the best tool for everything. And I think everybody mm -hmm. knows that feeling. Sometimes interpretive dance is the answer. Yeah, I think there, there's no overuse <laughs> I think for me, like it's, I mean, it's again a really good argument for diversity. When you have diverse types of people and diverse thoughts, you just get better science in the end. But it's also a really good argument if you're, for example, a young student, a PhD student, or somebody who's just moved into a new lab, and you go into your first seminar and people are asking questions and you don't necessarily know the methods they're talking about, but you have some idea of your own. Just because it's completely different from what everybody else is saying doesn't make it wrong. And in fact, it can make it really right. Or even if it is the wrong thing, it can be the wrong thing, which then like stimulates the discussion to move away from this kind of rut that everybody has mentally got themselves into by all knowing one side of the topic too well. Yeah. So I think it, it really argues for not being too afraid to voice opinions which might seem stupid or might seem like nobody else shares because even if everybody else turns around and says, no, Yoram, like, we don't want to, like, why are you suggesting that? That's a, that's a dumb thing. Go back and read the literature. Firstly, okay, your colleagues are assholes. Look into that. But secondly, like, I mean, yeah. this can stimulate the right discussion and moving things forward. So yeah. be brave. Go forth. Be bold. Yeah. And there's nothing really that these people can do to you apart from being mean. And if you think they're idiots, them being mean doesn't hurt you. So... <laughs> That's a healthy approach in life, in my opinion. No, but yeah. uh, the, the healthy approach is they're all idiots anyway. <laughs> That's your healthy approach. <laughs> they're all idiots. Anyway. Actually, I'm smarter than everybody, so it's fine. No, I, I don't think. I don't think it's being smarter than everybody, but acknowledging that even though, like, a group leader or a director or the leader of an institute might seem scary. There's very little that they can actually do to hurt you in the discussion of a paper thing. Obviously, there are abuses of power and so on. So it's not that they are completely harmless. But in terms of asking a question during a seminar, usually they can't really do terrible things to you. So be brave and go for it. And also, it. if you're new and young, it's really a great time to practice being stupid. Because, yeah. like, I mean... I actually find one of the problems in science, at least in my old department that I was in, is people were not afraid to, people were afraid to voice opinions. Um, they would only ask things if they themselves were very familiar with the topic. And that was just really a loss for everyone that, yeah. you know, we didn't get these discussions, which could be quite helpful for the people who yeah. want to hear other thoughts. We missed a lot yeah. of inspiration. Um, okay, uh, so that's my, my bias. This is where the fun begins. You, this is where the fun begins. You, this is where the fun begins. <laughs> this, this, this jingle just reminds me of a thing that I discovered um, also this week is that my little infant son um, falls easy, most easily falls asleep <laughs> when I'm listening to techno music. Um, <laughs> I watched this masterclass um, uh, from this like masterclass program from Deadmau5, like an electronic music producer, like uh, EDM, which is like a really straightforward electro electronic dance music. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. straightforward, like heartbeats, and it's made for people to party all night long. And so I played this like one afternoon in, in the living room, had my son on my arm, and I was like bouncing to the music, and he was a little bit sleepy, and then he fell asleep on my shoulder to like this party music. And then I tried, can I recreate this? And then um, on, an, on another day, when he was again a little bit sleepy, I first like beatboxed like a very repetitive rhythm with my mouth, and then uh, later just put it on on my phone and just like had him on my my arm i was like bouncing to the rhythm and he both times he fell asleep so now i just know like the hack for my son to fall asleep is to have like electronic dance music that everybody wants to party to to have that playing not super loud but have that playing move to the beat and he's like <laughs> falling asleep immediately <laughs> i just hope so it's, I think the- it stays with him so when he grows up and he goes to a party and everybody's having a good time and he's always getting sleepy <laughs> <laughs> you've just like ruined him for life in in berlin i think um now what i'm hearing is that we have like n equals one biological sample and maybe two replicas or three or four replicas of him that one biological sample being your own son falling asleep so what we really need you as listeners to do is go out and if you don't have a baby maybe take one or make one like if you maybe make your own don't take it like but find a baby there's quite a lot of them out there they're not that hard to get if you don't get want a to baby. make your own baby store-bought babies is fine Still want to be so fine. <laughs> just add water. Um, and just do the test and give us the numbers. We'll crunch them and we're going to get a science paper out of yeah. this. I think that's, this would be amazing. Like if we could get like <laughs> citizen science movement based on beatboxing babies. I mean, it sells itself, people. Like this shit is like pre-written for a press release. It's done. Yeah, I mean this, um, I, I count this as my own uh, weird parenting win, which is... Um, uh, also the title of a book that i've been reading or actually i can't read very far because whenever i read it my boy comes up to me and tries to like take the book and play with it um just read it to him can you read it to him i try but he he just comes to me and he gets upset if if he can't grab my book and play with it although it's not a picture Mm. book and it gets destroyed by his little hands but um yeah it's from i would have to look this up but she's the author also of a podcast called um the longest shortest time and she they, she wrote a book with lots of lots of anecdotes of other parents that have like weird parenting wins, um, things that mm-hmm. are unlikely to work but worked for them in their in their case, and it's quite fun. Like one of them was that a child didn't want to be spoon fed, and then one night they just tried to feed it with chopsticks, and the child <laughs> was intrigued by the chopsticks and then took the food, and f- from then on, only wanted to be fed by chopsticks. And although it's weird, it's also a win because then they can feed their baby. And for me, it's like, it's the techno music. It's like, it's mm. weird, but it works. I'm very happy about it. That sounds really great. So you would recommend that to other parents? I find Just... it very nice and relaxing. And also it has some very good, um, has very good opening about like all the things or like how hard the beginning can be. And nobody tells you that before. And so the whole book is sort of this spirit of just seeing like how weird and hard and different it is in different households. And all of that is Mm -hmm. fine. You can find your way. And if you find like your little wins and your little strange things that you do that that are not written down in any book, then you're going to have a much better time than if you stick to like very tightly to some some books that you want to follow. So yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes. I think Um, I can I can really recommend it. And let me just quickly Google the name of the author. So we'll mention that also here on the recording. Um, she is Hilary Frank. Cool. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about quickly about something about diversity. Yeah. 
which is um so I get the nature briefing which I think I've mentioned before on the podcast it's quite charming it's like three or four stories that are making the news and they send around what's happening in the science news and um this morning there was one that came up which was first genomic study of schizophrenia in African people turns up broken genes and I'm personally not that interested in human disease um so I didn't want to read the story, but in the small paragraph explaining the briefing, they were talking about the fact that actually with quite some um, human diseases, there's a misrepresentation of different races. So there's been studies that have only done been done in white populations or in some cases only in white male populations. And that actually can have some problems if you have different um, types of responses to different populations or different diversity in different populations. And one thing mentioned in this short paragraph is that the majority of human genetic diversity actually occurs in African populations across Africa because that's where humans did the majority of their evolution. And it's actually just, like, I was quite interested because it's something that I had never even thought about. It wasn't something that I had thought to thought think about, yeah. right? Like, yeah. like, I don't know. So I quite like these nature briefings just because it has these kind of little tidbits and you learn really a lot even about things that, like, I mean, I normally wouldn't be following stories about human disease or anything like that but that was kind of a fun a fun fact for my morning today can anybody uh, subscribe to these briefings yeah yeah it's just a um a mailer so okay. they send you an email every morning okay. i've been like getting it for a few years and i go on and off so sometimes i stop reading it for a bit because i yeah. don't need information in my life and then i kind of come back to it oh, and that's yeah, really cool maybe nice. i should also do that yeah, <laughs> I just clicked on the subscribe button for Nature because I thought it's a briefing, but no, nope. <laughs> it's the two hundred twenty euro per year. I hope no, yes, per year. Okay, <laughs> but still for individuals <laughs> over two hundred euros. It's for an article. That's not an article. <laughs> it's a highlight. <laughs> I said it's about four euros per journal. So, um, okay, um, yeah, <laughs> that's very cool. I have also something that's related to the African continent. Um, and it's unfortunately a little bit of a sad story. Um, it's the story of succulent smuggling. Have you heard about that? About like mm -hmm. the, I think you must have come across it on, on Instagram because there's this love for fat plants. There's all of these like fat plant mm -hmm. um, hashtags and so on. And there's a big craze, especially in Asian countries. So China, Korea and Japan uh, uh, mostly um, where these fat plants are very popular, these succulents. And the mm -hmm. problem with succulents is that growing them in nurseries takes a lot of time. They grow very slowly and they have very specific needs to grow. So they um, mostly originate from African countries where they grow in, in habitats that are very um, dry and have a very high light intensity. And so both of these you need for uh, growing them in nurseries, and which makes it especially sad that if you even if you buy them from the nursery and uh, you grow them in Korea or Japan or uh, in China, many of these areas have very high humidity and not actually that much light. So these plants suffer and often die very quickly. And um, mm -hmm. because the nurseries can't meet the demand, there's now a very active smuggling going on where people go to African countries, go out in the wild to pr even protected areas, um, pick these plants and then sell them on the black market for these succulents, um, which is very mm. damaging to the ecosystems. And now more and more countries in Africa are trying to stop that with very high um, penalties and fines and... Um, yeah, to, to stop these people. But uh, yeah, there's an article that we'll link um, from the Times where they discuss this this issue. 
Um, and I think the takeaway message from this is if you are into succulents, and I think it's understandable because they are quite cool plants, really think twice about whether or not they can, first of all, survive in your apartment if you can have like mm -hmm. dry high light conditions. And then if you, um, if you buy them, consider the sources where you get them from. Um, don't buy them from ch shady dealers. Don't buy them off like non-licensed dealers because then the chances are higher that they come from sources that are not ethically sourced and actually damaging to the, the ecosystems. And this happens across all walks of life. So with coral and sea anemone and like small tropical fish that get taken out of the oceans, um, birds getting taken from the native habitats. Like generally, guys, it's uncool to take things from their native habitats. It's especially uncool if they're rare. I mean, the rarer they get, the less cool it is. And added like dickishness if you're taking things from another country and you're just kind of profiting yeah. off stealing some country's native fauna or flora. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know our, our message here at Plants and Pets: just don't be a dick. It's not that hard. <laughs> don't be a dick. Yeah. Um, I have something cute. No, I'll leave that one to the very end, actually. I might have mentioned it before. Um, I have a quick thing about the coronavirus, if we can just do a really quick update yeah. there. Um, the New York Times. So last time Yoram and I talked about it, we had some problems finding information. And that was basically because it was the early stages still as far as what the public knows and what the scientists know about um the contagion level of the virus, how deadly the virus is, you know, what the delay is between showing symptoms and getting like being actually contagious, all these kind of things. We still don't know everything. And there's some possible political reasons why we didn't know things earlier. But at least now we're starting to get some facts. And there was something on the New York Times that came out a couple of days ago that I'll link to um, in the show notes, which is basically just kind of giving a rundown on how bad the coronavirus outbreak can get. Um, and there's now a few um, articles which seem a bit more reasonable, which are kind of talking about what we know and um, what the possible outcomes of this virus could be and might be. And of course, nothing's certain still, but we have moved on a little bit since last week where everything was complete chaos. Just again, be aware there's a lot of fake news out there. Um, and also one thing I was thinking about personally for me is that being in, in the UK, being in Europe, I tend to think of this in a very um, detached way. So I see it like there's this virus that's happening. It's not happening to me. It's not happening to many people that I know. So it's it's very easy to be emotionally dis detached. But obviously this is something that is hurting people, hurting people's family, destroying their lives and, and killing people. So um, yeah, we can discuss this from a scientific point of view, which is quite objective, but just again, it's something which does have human cost and it's therefore has like the sadness attached with that so yeah um uh, yeah we'll link that article in the show notes um i have yeah. a short thing um about a new study uh, that's talking about symbiosis and um it, it caught my eye because i just wrote about symbiosis um artificial symbiosis or th uh, synthetic symbiosis um between um wheat plants and uh, soil bacteria um, that we wrote mm -hmm. about on Monday this week um, in a story about how to engineer nitrogen fixation um, not into the plant but into the bacteria that grow next to the plant and how you can get the two to live close together. Um, and then I found on Twitter another story uh, about an artificial symbiosis uh, or, or symbionts um, in honeybee. Um, they, okay. they found... <gasps> yes. 
Sorry, I, I saw this. It's exciting. It's it's the engineered yeah, ones. Yeah, it's, or? The engine, it's the yes. engineered bacterium. There is a gut bacterium of honeybees um, that they all have. It's like it's it's not a pathogen. It's a snot gracella alvi, which is a beautiful name, snot gracella. Um, and they engineered in this study, they engineered the bacterium to express a double-stranded RNA. And this double-stranded RNA can then be targeted to different things. Um, and one thing that they targeted uh, were, first of all, the bee itself um, to induce some immune genes in the bee. So you would not actually modify the bee, you would modify this bacterium, put it like in a place where it gets eaten by the bee and then lives in the gut and then therefore triggers the immunity of the bee. But also they targeted against mite and uh, mite and virus genes. So there's this, these mite diseases um, that are um, affecting the, the bees and they are a great cause for concern. And there has been like different um, attempts to, to fight this. And this is a, a, a new one where they use um, a symbiotic or a symbiont of the bee to express something that kills or at least reduces the survival rates of mites in bees and therefore reduces the spread of the mites. I think it was 70% that they got um, 70% yeah. less survival when they had the engineered bacteria. And they survive for about um, 15 yeah. days in a bee, so comparatively long, I would say. Uh, and How long does a bee live? I don't know. Maybe a season or at least a couple of months, I would say. The, the queens live many years, but I'm not sure with the worker bees if they only live for like yeah, but a few months or a year or something. Yeah, I think they don't survive like a full year. I think just like the sort of the, the swarming season um, is what I survive. But I'm not a bee expert. That's why this is in the fun stuff category. No, I think they... I think they yeah, I think they winter. I think they like um, huddle down for winter and kind of be hibernate and like huddle together for warmth, don't they? So they must like survive. I think maybe some of them survive, but I think every year like most of the swarm regrows. But again, not an expert. Uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> um, I just thought it's a very cool story. So we'll also link to this story. It was published in Science. Just Yeah, it actually made the cover of Science. There's a really gross picture of one of these little mites like crawling around on the belly of a bee. And there's a couple of little disgusting mite bee pictures that rocking up on Science now. It was just published on the 31st of January this year. I actually wanted to mention this story as well because, um, yeah, I came across this. I thought it was really amazing. I have... um, Back in my old center in Australia where I worked 10 years ago, there was a group there working on bees and working on the immunity of different bees. Um, Boris Bear was the name of the researcher and he was just an amazing scientist and one of these um, really positive influences, one of these scientists who you think, oh yeah, I'd, I'd like to be like him when I grow up. He just seems to be doing things in a great way. Um, yeah, so shout out to him and this bee story is really cool. But I also heard two other things about bees this week that I wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. Firstly, um, I was listening to a podcast, which is from the ABC, so the Australian Broadcasting um, Corporation, not the American one, um, and it's called The Science Show. It's quite interesting, but you have to listen to Australian accents, so for me, it's great. It reminds me of home. <laughs> the rest of you see how it goes. Um, and there was one called How Bees See, where they were talking about the different ways in which Um, Bees can only see, for example, certain colors. I think blue is something that works for them, but also the way they communicate with their different dancers. Um, So that's kind of, I thought, quite was quite interesting and worth a listen. Um, (laughs) It also had a kind of um, more like um, 
established gentleman researcher who was very firm on his topic and was answering in quite a way of like, oh, no, 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 this is not how it's done. It's like this. And no, no, don't be silly. They thought that this was the case, but actually, which I found quite amusing. Um, and then the other thing is I was reading something else about bees today. I don't know where, I'm sorry. And I learned that there's a term for this kind of um, dance or movement that the bees do to communicate with the other bees where they can find different types of flowers or food sources. And it's called either a waggle dance or a waggle run. And I thought that was really <laughs> cute terminology. Like somebody's coming up with like, yeah, the bee did a little waggle run. <laughs> yeah, that's a scientific that's term. <laughs> <laughs> yes, waggle run. Nice. Um, okay. Let me just note down the word waggle run. Um, so for the next bit, um, you can choose, Tegan, how to... Like I have three different hacks and I'm going to present one this week and the other one later. Um, so the first one is how to hack... Wait, there was three. How to hack a racist, how to hack family politics, or how to hack Google Maps. And you can choose which hack you want to hear about. Uh, let's go with the racist. Okay, so the story with the racist is... Um, do you know Katie Hopkins? She's a big time nope. racist, I think, mostly in the UK. Um, she she uh, spews hate speech against Muslims, against feminists, against immigrants of all sorts, against pretty much anyone who is not like the person, uh, the, the like of her own uh, like white perceived race. Um, and so there were some people well on done, YouTube um, who thought there's something we can do about this person at least we can have a laugh at her expense and so they uh, created a fake award it's called the campaign to unite the nation trophy and in your head you can maybe think already about the acronym of that um, uh, <laughs> campaign to unite the nation you're saying yeah, yeah campaign to un unite <laughs> the nation trophy <laughs> and uh, so they Good. invited Got her it. to a fake thing i think in hungary for some reason they did it there so they traveled from south africa because this is where they were based uh, she traveled from uk um and then they held, held like a, a fake ceremony with um actors and um just like very much told her how nice she is and everything hold, held some speeches um and then gave her time to to speak and she said horrible things there's a youtube video about the thing um and she said just in this event for like to like 10 people she said horrible things um and all the actors had a laugh and she laughed as well for that and and then they it finally was the time where they gave her the trophy and then they put the name of the trophy in the back um with most uh, with like capitalizing very large <laughs> the the acronym letters the c the u the n and the t with small print mm -hmm. of campaign to unite the nation trophy and uh had a photo with her smiling in front of that <laughs> screen and then shared that on twitter and although you can dispute how useful it is to like pat the belly of a racist to make her feel good for an evening and have dinner with her um, just to get a picture where it insults her. Um, I still found it a funny prank on at her expense. Uh, and yeah, we'll link to the Twitter. I, I did not look up if the people who did that are terrible people or not. So forgive me if they themselves are in some way toxic, but from the way they presented the video, they sounded like their heart is in the right place. But I can't speak for it. So the name is Josh Peters and some friends of his. I I haven't watched it, so I can't yeah. say anything. I, I tend to think this stuff is a bit petty, um, but I'm looking at all the YouTube comments and they're saying 
oh, I felt bad for her. And then she opened her mouth and I was like, no, it's yeah, fine. Like, yeah, that's, that's the same thing that I had. I thought like, oh yeah, this is a little bit over the top. But then she gave her her little Odeisho and it was just, it was just horrible. It was just yeah. beyond... I don't know. I mean, does it does it mean that people, more people are listening to what she says? I mean, they, they like, cut it, it up. They cut it just like to the horrible bit. So it's not actually her talking okay. points. It's just like sort of the jokes that she makes that are terrible. And she's of the same like order as like Piers Morgan. <sighs> so she, I think, jokes at her expense to me are fine. But at the same time, yeah, you can absolutely. But argue. then she's still getting attention, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I went so I've gone so back and forth on yeah. this, this topic ever since Trump kind of came to power about like, should we let racists speak? Or should we just not have to listen to them? Because I can see it from both points of view, where on one hand, at least we know that they're racist, and it's kind of out in the open. And then we can like, kind of publicly denounce them. But on the other hand, like, there are minorities who have to constantly hear this. And I've kind of had this discussion in the, in the terms of like, being just like a woman in science sometimes where sometimes just having to constantly hear men make small tiny comments like like little microaggression comments about women not being as good as men or oh they don't think that way or they're more emotional blah 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 that would wear me down at some point and this is like nothing compared to what you have if you're a racial minority or anything else so I mean yeah I yeah yeah I don't know. I think sometimes the cost on the people who are actually the victims is just becomes higher if we let these people talk. Yeah. And this cost, it's it's it seems imaginary if you're not in a situation. But if this is what you're having to put up with every day, I don't know. Like it will definitely it bleh. will definitely not solve. Like it will not convince racists to not be racist, and it will not convince mm. her to change her mind. Um, I guess it's definitely preaching to the choir there yeah, as definitely. well, right? Like, it's like it's for the in group. And it's just uh, the whole point was getting a picture where she smiles and it says the C word behind her. And um, yeah. Should we discuss also like calling women the C word? It's also like, a problem. I yeah. like to call women dicks because I think the C word is generally used against women in a way which is often used by people being sexist yeah. like bitch so just call everybody a dick or we can choose a non-gendered word but i quite like calling women dick and also calling men dicks and just like keeping yeah. it although i have to I, because yeah. like, <laughs> i absolutely agree it's just like the the sound of the word it's such a harsh sound and sometimes it's, 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 it's heart, what yeah. you what you want and like the whole meaning and the use of it i agree this is all it's all bad. There's much better insults that you can use, but just from the sound of it, it has such an impact um, mm. that I can understand. Yeah, it's I think it's one of those things which still like kind of makes you like kind of have a physical reaction, yeah. which not many. I mean, depending on which circles you're moving in, darling. But most of us are, are quite um, filthy of the mouth, and yeah. not many words kind of make me go. Mm. Yeah. All right, what else are we up to? I have some more facts. Have you got I, more facts? I just have these other two hacks that I can go through, but they're really not plant-related anymore. And I have <laughs> a, a cat fact, even um, that, yeah, even almost two cat facts. So maybe I should spread them out and save one for next week. Um, okay, so I have something which, again, it's from nature. I'm sorry, I'm quite nature-heavy today, but I was a bit unprepared and I was getting so many cool ideas from this um, briefing. Um <laughs> Check my bias. Um, but there was a really nice article in Nature, Nature, Nature. Um, the, the, the nature that is nature, not nature that is nature X, Y, Z. Um, and it's a worldview. It only came out yesterday and it's from Gail Cardo. And it says, people will not trust unkind science. 
And the byline is Amin not the byline, the what's it called? Sub- the subtitle. leader thing. Subtitle Amin an aggressive research working culture threatens the public's respect for science and their expertise. And basically it's just kind of a short essay by Gail which talks about how people are having problems trusting elements of science at the moment. We can see that with the previous responses to things like the climate crisis, but just generally. Um, and she's discussing how I, often it's not that they don't trust the science, it's that they don't trust scientists. So one thing was yeah. that um, in um, relation to, I think, a toxic spill, people were saying, yeah, we believe that the scientists know what they're talking about. We just don't think that they have our interest at heart, like, so they have their own interests and they don't match our interests, which is really, really terrifying. And that's something that as scientists, like, if you do science, it's your duty to make sure that you or at least somebody, maybe somebody who's better at you if you're terrible at communicating, but somebody is communicating that science to the public in an accessible and friendly way. Because if the public does not trust scientists, they will not trust science. And this is terrifying. So just go and read the essay. It's it's quite... um. Short, it's only a few minutes of reading um, and it's quite a nice, gentle read, but it's kind of touching on this deeper problem of like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> and I was f- furiously nodding my head along to this story. Um, I thought you were just like um, headbanging to EDM. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, oops, I'm very much oops, agreeing oops. with it. Um, I mostly know it from, again, from, from Twitter, where I follow lots of uh, researchers and some of them have like a very arrogant way of communicating their their opinions or findings or their yeah pretty much the the results of their research and i don't think it helps anyone being uh, yeah being like this um even for like internal disputes even if you don't uh, do this like publicly there was like one researcher i for- forgot his name but um, it was something about new nomenclature of viruses and apparently nowadays viruses are supposed to get like two latin names instead of just one latin name and okay. there's some dispute in the in the field and this guy was like going mental on it he was calling the 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 people deciding this that they're all idiots and that they're stupid and he made like very angry polls on his twitter account about like how should we react to these idiots making up these things and like what is the point of being so angry about this and how does he think will this convince anyone of his points if at all like i have no idea on the topic and no opinion on the topic but just seeing him being such a dick about it I'm for the fa- for the for Guys, the change to like two two Latin names for viruses. Like I didn't care before. You're like deliberately against him. Yeah, but now you're like whatever he says, I do the opposite. Yeah, because he's just such a dick about it. Um. So yeah. Guys, don't be a dick. So yeah. I mean, and and Yoram and I are saying this as as very rage filled people. I mean, we have we both have a lot of rage, but like. We try to express it in constructive ways, like against racism. Or just between us, when we like pull each other down <laughs> with like <laughs> like terrible oh, things. Oh God, it's just like. But then once the microphones like are on, we're like positivity. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't see it, but I've just been pulling the finger on your arm this entire time. Like it's just, and your arm is actually facing away from the screen like a cat. You know, like when it's like it can see you, but it's deliberately averting its gaze. Yeah. And he's just been doing that for a good half an hour ever since I, I don't know, interrupted him while he was speaking or something. <laughs> yeah. 
it's passive aggressive, but kind of aggressive aggressive passive aggressive. <laughs> Very active passive aggressiveness. Um, do you have another fun fact, or do we want to pick? I have something that I want to ask you that I think you might know. Okay. What do these numbers mean to you? Well, what does a string to me mean to you? J I thirty two K seven A U four A eight three. Slow. <laughs> this is too fast when it's not my native language. <laughs> All right, it's J I thirty two K seven A U four eight eighty three. I'm also going to paste it into the um, chat unless you're eighty three. It's not dreiundachtzig. Um, no, it doesn't. It, I, I wrote, <laughs> spelled it out here. Um, I can't make sense of it. Wait, it's always no. It's not always a letter and. And two numbers following. So this is actually part of um, a talk that Yoram and I have quite often because I am terrible at many things and all of my passwords are Tegan, lowercase t. Um, and Yoram and I have these discussions where he says, you need to have secure passwords and the way to have secure passwords is to make them long. That's basically the way. And this is something that looks like quite a secure password because it's what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's 12 characters long. It has a mix of numbers and letters and it looks like something that is completely random. Them. But it is a surprisingly bad password. <laughs> and the reason it's a bad password and also a very common password is because if you kind of spell this out in um, slang in, I don't know if it's Taiwanese, I think it's in Mandarin, it actually spells out the letter my the letters me board are and what characters you can make by combining both those letters and numbers so it's i think the example of the worst password because the best password is one that you can re really easily um remember but which nobody else will think of whereas this is something where for me it's impossible for me to remember it. it's really complicated but it's like it says my password. So it's just, yeah. And I was looking this up today, um, no, a couple of days ago, just because I was curious about um, how different countries have different amounts of numbers in their, their internet addresses. So like usually we have like at gmail.com, at hotmail.com, but like on mainland China, it's common to have like at 123.com or at something with numbers. And I was wondering why there's this disparity. And then I came across this and I just thought this is really... Really cool, and I thought you might know about it, Yoram, no, as a kind of no, hacky nerd. I haven't heard that. The only thing... J-I-32-K, J-I-32-K. The only thing I know is, obviously, the best password is correct horse battery staple. <laughs> Guys, his first name is Yoram. His last name is Schwarzman. His, the first street that he lived in, it was Fern Street. His mother's name is Dolphin. <laughs> his that actually... Um, yeah... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to link to where the correct horse battery stable comes from if people don't know it yet. And then I'm very disappointed. I'm assuming it's XKCD, it's XKCD yeah? Obviously it is. There we um, go. Okay. Um, Cut <laughs> And what did I wa just want to say? Ah, yeah. There's a trend um, of like fake Facebook quizzes where, or not like, like viral posts that say like, your stripper name is the street you grew up on and your favorite animal. <laughs> and then all these people yeah. write that in the comments and there's a number of these memes that are sort of sent around. And I, I guess most of them are <laughs> not actually used maliciously, but they're absolutely designed to find the answers to this like password recessed questions. Um, and people just giving them away because it's framed in a fun way um but i heard that about also this thing of um 
show what you looked like the 10 year challenge show what you looked at 10 yeah. years ago and now and it's to help train like facial aging software it's helped like do this facial like this data can be mined and i don't know if that was the original person's idea who'd set it up but like it's a really great way for companies like google to work out how to age faces and, and i think it was a facebook um like campaign it was like started by okay. facebook used in facebook mm. to train data sets um so wait, you're, you're telling me Facebook doesn't have my best interests at heart? <laughs> Turns out, no. <laughs> Mark, say it isn't so. <laughs> I thought we had a connection. You were my first friend on Facebook. No, wait, that was MySpace yeah. where Tom was like everybody's first space, friend, Tom, right? Yeah. He never, he never let us down. I, MySpace Tom is so much better than Facebook Mark. He was just kind of like benign yeah. presence. He wasn't like, I mean, like, like kind of not benign, like, like he, yeah, he, neutral. He neutral left good. the whole thing before it got, got bad. Like he was paid out. I sold MySpace. I mean, yeah, he sold it and he got millions of dollars, right? Like but it's not I like. I think it's the best way you can go with his social network. It's, I prefer this much mm. over the possibility of becoming like an evil overlord like Mark Zuckerberg. Um. <laughs> I'd like to be an evil. I think I'd quite like to be an evil yeah. overlord. I think the costumes would be really fun. <laughs> what, like blue like you jeans get to wear a lot and a great coats. t-shirt? Like Mark Zuckerberg definitely does not <laughs> take up the chance to have great nah, costumes. I'd do it trendy. Like I'd have like a, a coat. I'm really into now because I was watching this six musical. I really like the idea of having kind of like slightly puff sleeve waistcoat, kind of like a little bit Elizabethan or like that kind of stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, just, yeah. And definitely a monocle. I think I could really pull off a monocle. <laughs> Okay, so... All right, maybe Catfight, your arm has lost interest because I started talking about fashion again. No, actually, like... This is like <laughs> this is a plot podcast, on, what are you talking we're about? We're on a tangent of a tangent of a tangent by now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Goodbye, I, I listeners. Could, I could talk about how I would really much like to learn to sew, but I just didn't find the time yet to actually do this. But my plan was that um, with the start of my parental leave time, I, I would learn how to sew because I think it's such a great skill and I wish I could learn that skill, but I just I just didn't take the time to do it. It's not that I don't have the time, mm -hmm. it's that I prioritized it too low to actually go through with it. But yeah, I like fashion. It's fair. Like, I think like Okay, no, I'm not gonna I really wanted to start talking about zombies, but I'm just gonna like cut it off. Do you there. Have a oh, I do have a story. I have a story about zombies. Can I tell you a story yes, about zombies? A zombie story. It's also a Bumble story. So it's called Tegan's Adventure in Bumble Land. So there was a boy on Bumble <laughs> and he had like nothing on his profile. So I don't know if any of you know Bumble. It's like uh, Tinder. You have a profile, you swipe left or right. This person didn't have very much, but one of the words they had is dreamer, which is a little bit pretentious. I'm sorry, guys. Like if you're a dreamer, it's fine, but you've got to be able to converse about what you're dreaming about. So I wrote a message saying like, hey what sort of dreams because i always dream about zombies and then i wake up like it does not lead to a very restful life and then he just like responded with the word aspirations <laughs> and i was like <laughs> i was like oh my god okay i'll try one more time <laughs> because i'm sorry like the whole point is to start conversation like i don't think i'm doing this wrong again like call in if i'm doing this wrong guys because clearly i need some help um <laughs> and then i responded and i was like sure but aspiration or just sounds really stupid it does which i thought was very funny that was my response and he just said not to some people <laughs> just like left the conversation so um I, uh, this 
which is why I'm single. <laughs> I think it's better to be single than to be together with a guy who just knows the word dreamer and aspirations. I just do not understand, like, who cannot have a conversation about zombies? Even if your conversation is, I don't like zombies, that's a conversation. Like, it is the perfect conversation piece. Like, I just... Is it, though? I've had conversations with so many people about zombies, Yoram. You cannot imagine. Most of the conversations are them rolling their eyes, but it's non-verbal <laughs> communication, and I think it still counts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I forgot my other tension that I wanted to go on now. <laughs> cats, 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 cats. <laughs> I, I remember I'm, I talked recently to a guy in a, in a forum. Um, no, on not Bumble? On, on, on Bumble. I'm not on there. I'm very far away from the Bumble life. Um, I talked about uh, with a guy who believed in manifestations. And manifestations uh -huh. is you wish for something really hard and then it happens. And that's mm -hmm. the whole thing. It's and then there's like this whole community around it where people like write about things that they wished for really hard. And a lot of the things mm -hmm. are like, yeah, this morning I had to go to work and I really wished for the bus to come early. And then it came on time and I was really happy about it. And I was just like, why do you think your it, problems are not real problems to do with this? How, how can you view the world? <laughs> like what happens to you that you think about like a bus that comes on time? You're like, oh yeah, I wished for that. And that's why the bus came on time. <laughs> one of, one of our very beloved mutual friends once came up with a phrase in response to somebody telling about how hard their life was, which was a very stupid, you know, discussion. And she just responded to them saying like, dear friend, your problems are not real problems. <laughs> And it's kind of the same situation, right? Like, if the thing that you're wishing for most in life is that the bus is coming on time, you need to think about how privileged you are and how, like, well your life is going and consider that your problems are not real problems. Well, okay. uh, I think... Hopes and prayers, I man. I think we are at the cat fact now. <laughs> and with that... Do you have one? You have a, you have uh, a jingle. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, well... I actually don't know if that classes as a jingle. Cat it's fact. like noise. <laughs> and the robot voice. Um, yeah, I... I Did, wasn't there a time period like like five years ago when I first got like apps on my phone and I had a cat app and I was making it make meowing sounds and you made it stop? Like you wouldn't let me do it anymore in your house? Um, yeah, that, that sounds like something that would happen between us. <laughs> And here we are. I have by now actually I found another cat fact by now. So I have three and there's there's one that I definitely want to talk about and the other ones we'll see. Do you also have cat facts? I have no cat facts. Um first of all, there's a website you can go to now. It's just called thiscatdoesnotexist.com. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep, yeah, I've got it. <laughs> uh, describe what you're seeing. Um, it's, a, it's cat. a cat and if you reload the page it will be a different cat and what all of these cats have in common <laughs> is that none of them exist because they're all generated by a neural network um, that does like style transfer and it takes like lots of different cat pictures and then combines them into new cat pictures that depicts cats that do not exist um, 
a couple of them look a little bit yeah. screwed up. Like a couple of them don't quite look if right. You go to, like the proportions are off. If you go to thispersondoesnotexist.com, um, it's the same, it's the same well, thing with people. And this is where it goes really crazy because the cat pictures are sort of low resolution and small. Um, but if you go to the this person does not exist, um, it's the same thing. You can click on another there and it's mm-hmm. lots of faces of people. And we'll put some of the, the, the faces in, um, in your podcast app right now so you can see them. And it's crazy how good many of those look. Um, <laughs> the one I'm looking at is not good, but I don't know how to, I can't screenshot it. <laughs> um, yeah, usually when something bad happens it's in the background, if there's like other faces in there, other things look like terrifying and terrible. Yeah, this one is also quite bad. <laughs> Tegan's just showing me. He's like, <laughs> he's wearing a hat or yeah. something. So sometimes they have like hats or glasses at times, um, this algorithm breaks. But if this if they don't have such a feature and if the background is relatively clear... They look absolutely realistic. Um, and I showed some of them around to like friends. And yeah, it's just, it's crazy how realistic they look. It's a bit terrifying. Um, and it's all done with like style transfer on the website. There's some links to how it works um, uh, to some YouTube videos. It's like neural networks, AI stuff. So it's not actually like this. It's not a smart system. It's just a very well-trained system on a large data set. And then it, uh, transfer styles of different portraits onto other portraits creating images of people that does, do not exist like this um so actually i saw a story about this or something very similar to this about a year ago maybe and it was specifically about google photos and it showed a, a picture of a happy couple where both of them were smiling and they said this is a beautiful picture from the holiday of i don't know ben and jeremiah or ben and jerry whatever um and then it was like, the problem is this photo never took place. And basically what it was is that Google had an algorithm where it has four or five photographs and in one of them, you know, Ben is blinking and in one of them, Jerry is not smiling or is, I don't know, picking his nose. And it took them and mixed and matched so that it would create a photo where both of them were smiling. But that instance where they both were smiling never happened or at least was never captured as a photograph. And already Google, Im- I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Google, but... Yeah, um, was kind of mix and matching to make this best case scenario, which wasn't a real yeah, thing. And I think we'll see much more in that of that in the future. There's already a technique that Apple had in some betas of their software, where uh, at FaceTime when you do a video chat, you you either look at the screen or you look at the camera. If you look at the camera, the person you're talking to has the impression you're looking at them, but if you look at the screen to see the person, you're looking under the camera. So you sort of your eyes are offset a little bit. And Apple has like a better mm-hmm. software where they correct with like ai your pupils so while you look at the screen the pupils are corrected that they look like you look at the camera so that the person like this right uh, (laughs) that the person you're talking to has impression that you're looking directly at them and um when it worked well it was quite impressive but it also resulted in some like really creepy artifacts and and yeah, also, it, it alters the, the live view of the image. Like, you're thinking mm. the camera shows, like, on a very, like, one-to-one um, relationship, shows what it's in front of it. But now with algorithms, no, I mean, this I... it gets much more than just, like, color and contrast and sharpness and stuff. It goes into, like, actually modifying the contents of the image according to certain, like, algorithms. But my, my Google, my phone absolutely does. I have just a, a basic Moto G... I don't know, six plus or something. And it absolutely does that. It it alters um, the ratios of things depending on which angle you are relative to the camera. So um, it 
is not I don't I don't think it's actually just the camera itself it's like kind of a fisheye kind of effect but I think it's trying to correct for that mm -hmm. I think so yeah and Apple also presented like this whole computational photography where like the phone takes lots and lots of intermediate pictures and then combines them to make like the best of of those and when that goes wrong then you get like a very artificial like smoothing of your skin effect that was in one of the the um, better software releases or actually like a release software mm -hmm. um, so we're gonna see lots more and if at one point we, we're going to get like real-time quick style transfer um, I could just say like I put in like I don't know a picture of Brad Pitt and then my live view would immediately be changed to a very realistic picture of Brad Pitt talking um, which would be that mm. obviously a step down for me like I would look that much less attractive <laughs> then yeah, I wouldn't talk to you anymore if you were that <laughs> ugly. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's sort of scary. But th at the po at the moment, we are at the stage where it's sort of a fun exercise to see what we can do with neural networks. I'm quite interesting with this. This person does not exist. If you click through a few of them, there's a couple. So I think a lot of them they're quite obviously chosen the gender which they can do easily based on like hairstyle and jewelry but there's quite a few of them which are kind of then blurring the lines of gender because i guess they've used facial facial features coming from somebody looking more stereotypically mm -hmm. like male gender and female gender and i'm using this like you know i mean whatever the 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 outlook is so you're getting these kind of more androgynous faces and faces which i would assume have been mixed from from people yeah yeah you get this. This is quite, it's quite interesting. It's, it's kind yeah. of cool to see. And actually. I find it mesmerizing to click through all of yeah, them. Yeah, I have and, one here actually. Some of them, yeah, they like if. So this is like th there's one that has yeah. a, a woman, but like the bottom of the face has a beard, and this yeah. is something that you would not normally see, yeah. I guess. I mean, there's some of them that definitely have have artifacts from the composition. Um, but there's others. If I would see that as like a Twitter avatar or on Facebook or something. I would have no idea that this is not a real photo. And um, mm. obviously in this case, like you, if you, even if you would take some of these pictures and would use them as like a fake avatar of yourself, you don't have any other pictures to show. So um, you only have like this, this one picture that for like some trolling might be enough. But um, if you want to convince somebody that you're a real person, um, you might need mm. some more, but Technically, all the software is in the description here, so you can set it up yourself and then create from the same sort of input a number of different versions of a similar similar face. And um, yeah, it's fun times <laughs> ahead. <laughs> yeah, all that deep fake stuff as well, right? So, um, I mean, we've been talking for such a long time, but I have like... We should really wrap up. I think we... Oh, you want another have, cat fact? You fun can, cat you fact. You can choose between a, a mammal or a bird. Uh, is the mammal no, a cat? But none of them are cats. But then the bird. bird. Um, there's a story on the BBC where um, somebody picked up an owl and uh, it couldn't fly anymore, and they were, uh, were worried that the owl was hurt, but it was just too fat to fly, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they put it on a diet. That's sad. <laughs> it, it lost about thirty grams, which is a lot for this owl. Like it, it weighed around two hundred and thirty grams, so they put it on a diet and then it could fly again and it didn't eat the bad thing it just ate too much it, it was they said it was a very uh, successful hunter and just um was in an area where there was a lot of prey and it just was too successful at catching all the prey eating all mm -hmm. the prey and then at one point it, it got too fat to fly away and was picked up by people and luckily by people
simple because if it would have been uh, picked up by a fox or something, it would have been dead. Um, so that's just a very mm. short story about. A, well done, people! You did something a fat good. Owl that couldn't fly anymore. Um, so now, now we can wrap up. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> closing. Follow us on all of our social media. <laughs> We're on Instagram and on Facebook at Plants Where we um, uh, follow the great Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> uh, we're also on Twitter Worship. where we are taking part in a big cesspool of like racists and terrible people. Oh my God. <laughs> Social media um, are great we're people. Plants. So we're at Plants for Pets on Twitter. Please talk to us there. Make it a nicer place. Yeah. Usually, Yoram's talking on Twitter. Um, if I talk, I sign off with T. I'm usually talking on Instagram and Facebook, which is why there's more pictures of cats on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we also have a blog, www.plantsandpipettes.com. That is, is that correct, correct Tegan. <laughs> <laughs> and we put posts up usually every Monday and Wednesday. And you can also link to the podcast through that. But presumably, you've already found the podcast. Clever work. Yeah. Well done, you. You Clever can well subscribe you. to us in any podcast app. And if you would leave us a review on... Except for Spotify. Except for Spotify, yes. But Spotify is not a podcast app. There's another tangent that we're not... Because Yoram has morals. Going into now. <laughs> Again. Damn Yoram and his morals. Rate <laughs> um, um, us on yeah. iTunes. That would help us a lot. I think we're still like... You guys, you could do much better because we don't, we don't have, have any ratings. Many ratings there and we deserve much more. You should actually be embarrassed for yourself, um, I would say. We should what? They should yeah. be embarrassed. Um, no, but really, guys, um, any kind of comments or liking or starring or whatever is very helpful. Um, we did have somebody who gave our blog a don't recommend or our Facebook page a don't recommend because nobody needs to understand how plants work. We should just go and plant trees, which we found a little yes, bit upsetting. So, um, and then Yoram reported them, which was not very mature. Of him. <laughs> I, I didn't think it would um, do anything. It usually never does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, please, like whenever you give us any kind of attention in the form of likes or clicks or shares or comments, it really does help us get to more people and do the communication thing that we enjoy doing. Yeah. So, yeah. And be helpful, the opening guys. The closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross and I think even the outro today was that much longer than usual. Uh, we're sorry. I'm not I, sorry. I don't know. Am I not tired enough? Goodbye. Am I too tired? Who, who can even tell? <laughs> no, I want to keep talking. I have things I need to tell you. <laughs> <laughs>